You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. It was April 3rd, 1994, a snowy Easter Sunday just before 8 in the morning when Heidi made her last transaction at the D&W convenience store in Mexico, where she worked and then disappeared. But the big question remains tonight, where is Heidi Allen? They said they grabbed her from behind the counter and dragged her out the door and threw her in the back of Michael Moore's van. I didn't know Michael Moore had a white van. Well, it's not even, they didn't even bring her in the house. They didn't send the van. What do you think happened to Heidi? What was done with her body? He laid down in two areas, which was a sign, it's an indication that there were human remains. All I know is they ended up chopping her up. If they would have put that van on my trailer and Heidi would have been in that van, that's where it would have went, right to the shredder. I've been in this from day one, and you know, there's nothing else I can say. This is the story of Heidi Allen, the story of a small town kidnapping where corruption got in the way of justice. The truth is finally coming out. This is Peebles for the People, and I'm Alex Peebles. Download and subscribe to Peebles for the People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Hi, I'm Annie from the U.S. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you just heard the promo for Pulse for the People, and they really just published their season final, uh, I think it was last week, and if you go there now, that means you have a lot of episodes to binge listen to, so please go and check them out. Sounds good. Also, we want to take a minute to say thank you to our new Patreon patrons. This is amazing. We really do. We can't tell you enough how much we appreciate your support. So shout out to our new Patreon members who are Molly Mai, Lululand13, I know who that is, Christy Kelly, Heather Hardford, Stacy, Sticky Sounds Zine, Lacey Spraduti, Heather Shry, Sintamani Crawford, Deborah Smetana, Belladonic Hazy Janelle, Kirsten Fest, Kara King, Colleen Backer, Allison Garant or Garant, Leslie Polito, Faith, and Aliyah. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much for your support. We really do appreciate it, and we are overwhelmed, actually. <laughs> we are now working on the second episode about time traveling, which will be interesting. Not very yeah. scientific, though. <laughs> no, no. Another shout out to our hellion Jill, because she left us such a lovely message telling us that she and her husband, um, they rearrange date nights to Wednesdays, because oh, that yeah. way um, they can listen to our newest episode on their way to the restaurant. <laughs> I think it's lovely. And I hope you're having a great evening. Yeah, I hope you have a very nice, nice romantic date night tonight. Uh, we want to also wish my friend and one of our moderators in the Facebook group, Tammy, we want to wish her a very happy first anniversary. Yes, I hope you had a great year and many more will follow. It's all uphill from here after 2020. Yeah. It's just, 
we hope. <laughs> okay, so now we are halfway through spooky season and so far we talked about Austrian ghost stories and the true story behind a terrifying urban legend and for today we thought we could talk about ghost ships and we're going to cover lesser known and shorter stories about ghost ships but nonetheless they are still very fascinating and creepy. They are, yeah. I love, I love ships and the ocean and everything that comes with it so ghost ships... I mean, how could I not love a ghost ship, right? And I know probably a lot of you are thinking the Mary Celeste. Uh. And this episode will not be about the Mary Celeste. But don't worry, we're definitely going to cover that very famous ghost ship eventually. But today, for spooky fuckery season, we want to tell you three other stories about some lesser-known ghost ships. And we want to start with the Seabird, which is North America's first reported ghost ship. This all happened in 1750 off the coast of Rhode Island. The Seabird was a so-called brig. If you're not sure what a brig is, I looked it up just so I'd be sure to tell you exactly what it is. And it is as follows, according to Merriam-Webster. Quote, a two-masted sailing ship with square rigging on both masts is called a brig. Brigs were both naval and merchant mercantile vessels. As merchantmen, they often followed coastal trading routes. However, ocean voyages were not uncommon, and some were even used for whaling and sealing. Naval brigs carried 10 to 12 guns on a single deck. In the 18th and 19th centuries, they served as couriers for battle fleets and as training vessels for cadets. Brigs of the early United States Navy won distinction on the Great Lakes in the War of 1812. Because square rigging required a large crew, merchant brigs became uneconomical, and in the 19th century they began to give way to vessels such as the schooner and the bark. End quote. And the Seabird was a merchant brig. It weighed about 300 tons, and according to one of the sources we found, it was owned by a man named Isaac Steele. The ship was expected to return to Newport, Rhode Island any day now, and indeed one morning it was spotted in Easton Bay. Nobody seemed to be on the deck, which obviously was really weird. When a sail ship returns to harbor, you expect all hands on deck, right? But slowly but surely, the seabird did kind of glide through the breakers and it made its way onto the beach where it stranded itself. And all of the looky-loos at the time, which would probably be like literally everyone in town, right? I mean, what else was there to do? R literally nothing. Just chores. <laughs> and so, yeah, you know you're going to go look down at that ship that's beached itself but everyone's looking and they're like uh it's completely silent where is everybody so then a few people ended up going ahead and boarding the ship to find out what was going on and they found only two survivors on board a cat and a dog but that was it nobody else dead or alive could be found on board and the cat and the dog were not talking what <laughs> else did they find while they were investigating the ship so this is where it's weird. All of the cargo was there, stored securely in the ship's belly. The longboat was missing. And so you think, oh, right, okay, maybe something went wrong with the ship and the crew had to abandon the seabird. But nope, the ship was totally intact, completely seaworthy, no signs of any damage. The ship's instruments were all in working condition, and there was no sign of any kind of foul play or disturbance. In the captain's quarters, they found some coins in plain sight, so they knew the ship hadn't been robbed. And the last entry in the captain's log read, quote, Brenton Reef sighted. Brenton Reef is located roughly four miles north of the shore of Newport and only a couple miles from Easton Bay. So really, really close. It could not have been long ago since Captain had made this entry, right? So yeah, it's just like everyone disappeared so fast, right? Yeah. 
And this captain is a man named John Durham, or maybe Huxham. You see different things in different accounts, but he seems to have been a very experienced captain, whatever his name was. So the fire was still burning on the stove, a pot of coffee was boiling on top of it, and some accounts say that the table was set for breakfast and you could still smell tobacco smoke in the air. It just seemed like moments before the ship was full of people and in an instant, everybody had just left. I don't know. It's like the little details that make everything creepy, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's just like they've been beamed up. Yeah. Where did they, like, how in that such a short period of time? And yeah, obviously the cat and the dog, they weren't going to be much help figuring out what had happened. That'd be great, wouldn't it, if they just started an impromptu game of charade? <laughs> And it gets a little creepier, though, because a little while later, a fishing boat returned to Newport, and the fishermen stated that they had sailed past the seabird only a few hours earlier, and that they had seen men, including the captain, on deck, and had waved a friendly hello to them. The captain, Durham, had apparently waved back. So, yeah, the whole crew just vanished on a nice day in broad daylight with no trace and nobody knowing whatever happened to them. So, the cargo was unloaded from the seabird. But then the next day, the seabird was just gone, vanished, just like the crew had vanished. And some think that it's still out there searching for its crew, which is mm, spooky, right? I don't know. So maybe spooky. not. <laughs> maybe, maybe not really that spooky. I don't know. I think the part about the seabird vanishing overnight is probably just lore because what happened or what most likely happened is that the ship was then sold to another Rhode Island merchant by the name of Henry Collins. And he renamed her, which is completely understandable. If you've got a ghost ship, you're definitely going to change yeah. the name, right? And the seabird became the beach bird. <laughs> not much of an imagination there, eh? Beach bird. It's what my English family call me. Anyway, the beach bird <laughs> undertook many, many more voyages under that name. But the part with the vanished crew is creepy enough without having a sentient ship out there looking for semen. Um, now, <laughs> that sounds wrong. <laughs> There's a bank on Cape Cod that's called the Seaman's Bank. And it just always, it just seems wrong. <laughs> All right. Now, that was not the last that was heard about the seabird, though, because many tales and witness accounts, I'm doing real big air quotes there, have been written over the decades, and the story of the seabird turned into one of those tales where it's it's really impossible now to distinguish fact from fiction. So dates change, the whole incident is suddenly set a hundred years later than it really occurred, names change, the name of the captain as well as the name of the looky-loos on the beach all change, but it's a good story. And it's an especially good story for spooky fuckery season. And so therefore, I am now going to read you the story, The Lonely Ship, that was printed in the Sunday Morning Star, October 11th, 1885, page 3, The Lonely Ship. More than a century ago, an incident occurred which took finally the form of narrative and traveled from one generation to another bearing a perplexing name. One morning in the autumn of 1760, a square-rigged vessel under full sail appeared in the harbor of Newport. This created only the ordinary interest due to the arrival of a homebound craft, for the seabird, commanded by Captain Huxham, was due at this time from Bristol, and no one felt any surprise at seeing her steer forward her port. The captain's friends assembled on shore to give him greeting. As they waited and gazed, they perceived that the ship, instead of altering her course for Narragansett Bay, was running directly toward the beach. What could it mean? Voices rang out, a warning of danger. No one replied. 
Nobody heard them. As the people looked, they were filled with astonishment. Not a man was to be seen on deck. On, on came the vessel as if steered by a ghostly hand, and struck the shore half a dozen yards from the spot where the group were standing. Boats were instantly put out to search into the cause of this singular proceeding. Not a human being was found on board the ship. Only a little dog of all the living creatures who embarked at Bristol remained in the vessel. A fire was still burning in the caboose, and there were signs that some preparation had been made for the breakfast. The captain's journal was in order, but the logbook was missing. The boats, too, were gone. A dressing gown lay at the foot of the stairs, as if hastily thrown off. No traces of violence or conflict were visible. Great was the mystery, many the conjectures as to its cause. Some supposed the captain and crew had been the victim of pirates, but then how to account for the orderly condition of the ship? Had the sailors, terrified by a squall, taken to the boats? Had there been any panic, and of what nature? It was easy to ask questions, impossible to answer them. No solution of the enigma could be found. People shook their heads when it was mentioned. Some believed that invisible hands had transported the crew to another sphere, and had guided the vessel to its haven. Here was an instance which showed that we were surrounded and possessed by spirits. Only skeptics could flout testimony like this. Thus, for sixty years, the story lived, and the fate of Captain Buxom and his company remained an unsolved problem. Early in the year 1800, the ship Sultan of New York, commanded by Captain Henry Robson, ran on to the Falsterbow Shoals in the Baltic Sea, and being considerably damaged, was taken to the Swedish port Estad for repairs. During his stay, Captain Robson heard rumors of an old man, supposed to be an American, who led an eccentric life in the little town. The captain paid a visit to his countrymen, whom he found venerable of aspect and walking in the shadow cast in the passage of eighty years. Whether the fact that they were compatriots unloosed his lips, or that a guilty conscience felt weary of its burden, who can say? Speech seemed to him relief, and he related to Captain Robson the secret of his life. My name is Thomas Hanway. At the age of nineteen, I shipped with Captain Huxham on board the Seabird. My luck was bad. The captain seemed a stern man from the first, the mate I took a fancy to. He was a good-looking fellow, black-haired, black-eyed, rosy-cheeked, with white teeth, which he showed a good deal when he spoke or laughed. He had a dashing manner, too, that I liked. But after we had got to sea, he changed his ways. He grew sharper than the captain, sharp as a carving knife. I wondered how I ever could have thought him handsome. There was something in his speech that roused the evil spirit in me. He would turn round on a poor fellow and give a stab with two civil words. I never could tell how he did it. When I repeat the words even to myself, I couldn't see what there was in him to make me feel pricked. But I knew, too. T'was the mocking look in his face when he spoke. T'was his crafty smile that parted way from his white teeth, a smile that didn't mean goodwill to anybody. We had passengers on board, and they all liked Mr. Rundle. He could be very pleasant to them. He told stories and sang songs, and he had ways like a gentleman when he chose to put them on. We had two children on board. He amused them, was polite to their mother, and had long talks with their father, who was a sea captain going out to bring home a vessel of which he was a part owner. I heard him say that Mr. Rundle was a capital officer. Perhaps he was. But how he did swear at us poor fellows. If the boy's mother had known it, I don't think she would have had them listen to Mr. Rundell for fear they might hear words not good for them to know. But after all, we had a nice passage, pleasant weather, and a short run, and they made me forget 
the ugly things. I was young and strong and cheerful. I made up my mind that Mr. Rundle was to be obeyed so long as he was my mate. I made up my mind, too, that once back in New York, I wouldn't ship again with Captain Huxham. I think this resolve helped me to bear a good many hard words. In this, I believe I should have succeeded had it not been for Jack Hensdale, an English sailor who was always having trouble with Mr. Rondell. Hensdale was my watchmate, and I was doomed to hear continually his threats of vengeance against the man he hated. You're a fool, Tom, to let him lord it over you so. He treats you like a dog. Why don't you turn on him and show your teeth? I was tempted the next afternoon to follow Jack's counsel. I had asked to be let off duty. I had a bad headache and wanted to go below. Mr. Rundell looked at me with a mocking smile as I asked him to let me off. Go to Samson with your headache, he cried in taunting tones. He would have said to go somewhere else if Mrs. Bland hadn't been standing near. He looked as if he wanted to spit at and spurn me. Night after night did Jack threaten what he would do to Mr. Randall, but he never did it, and I began to turn a deaf ear to his promises of revenge. I got tired of hearing him talk on one subject, and I I was thankful when we neared Bristol. Now my trouble is half over. I had borne my mate's cruel treatment coming out, and I could bear it going back, so I said to Jack. He swore at me and called me a greenhorn and a fool. As we were going into the harbor, fresh trouble arose between Rundell and the mate. Jack made some bold answer to Mr. Rundell, and the latter took up a rope's end to him. He dodged it, ran aft, and made as if he would jump into the water. But remembering he would lose his chest if he did this, he turned back and went to his work. As Mr. Rundell passed, he gave me some order. I despised him at that minute. I dare say I showed what I felt, for pretending that I didn't move when spoken to, he brought his fist down on me like a trip hammer. It was hard to keep up courage under such treatment. When I reflected that I should have to bear this, and worse perhaps on the voyage back, my good resolutions faltered. Jack was always at my side to nurse my wrath and to tempt me. He said there wouldn't be any passengers going back, and that the mate would treat us like brutes. Quit the vessel, he said. Come with me and I will show you where to get gold. We'll leave these fellows and live like princes. Jack was a serpent in human form. I listened to his words, gave up my struggles, adopted his evil counsel, and tried to desert with him, but our plan was thwarted. Some of our messmates got wind of it and betrayed us. We were taken prisoners, handcuffed, and put on board the seabird, just as she was on the point of sailing. Jack showed fight, but he was soon overpowered by two strong men. Curse our luck, he said, as he felt himself a captive. The captain and the mate seemed like evil spirits. No pity had they in their hearts for poor tars who had borne insult and cruelty till they could bear it no longer. I know we were deserters and deserved punishment, but we didn't deserve to be mocked at, always. Mr. Rundell would cut a joke at our expense every time he passed us. The captain made his jibes, too, and the crew smiled and winked till I hated every one of them. I had got to be a bad fellow, but I grew worse. It seemed as if the mate showed more malice every day. Jack didn't appear to mind his language, but when we were together, he would swear revenge and vow to throw the mate overboard. One night, I was at the helm. A rough sea was running, and I couldn't prevent the ship from pitching heavily. Mr. Randell gave me bad words, which raised my blood. Just then, the foresheet slipped, and he ordered Jack to haul it aft. Jack said he couldn't do it alone. The mate went forward to lend a hand. In another minute, the man that had made both of us miserable was battling with the sea. T'was a black night, black enough for any deed. I can see now just how the sky looked, not blue, but slate color. Every star seemed like a staring yellow eye. They all winked as if they would pierce my soul, but I cared for nothing, even when the mate's calls for help should have touched my heart. They roused the captain and crew. All flocked on deck. 
Cries of murder filled the air. Hensdale and I were knocked down, secured, and confined. Our doom was sealed. We both felt sure of that from the first, but we were not long left in ignorance of our future. The captain visited us every day and assured us often that we should be hanged as soon as we got into port. Not a word of comfort fell from his lips, nor a ray of pity beamed from his eyes as he told us what we had to expect. It was through him that Satan visited me. I no longer cared for what I did to anybody. One idea filled my mind, that of saving my life. Why should Jack and I let the captain reach land if he was going to tie us to the rope's end when we got there? I was determined against it. We began to try our irons to see if we could slip them off. For some time it was impossible, but by dint of working we managed to get them on and off again. This was the first step toward freedom. We were nearing New York rapidly. The captain paid us a visit and grinned spitefully as he told us we would be in jail before twelve o'clock the next day. The time for acting had come. We slipped our irons and went on deck. All is confusion in my mind as I try to remember what followed. I know that captain and crew were sent to their last account. One murder had seared my conscience. The others were easy, but I didn't lift my hand against the captain. Thank God for that. Neither did I lift a finger to help him. As I said before, my mind is in a whirl when I think of the bloody business which made the day black as a pit. Two natures were in me, my old self and a devil, and since I had been treated like a dog, the devil had swamped Tom Hanway. The dreadful work was finished, and Hensdale and I were masters of the ship. We had our liberty, but what should we do with it? How escape the justice awaiting us on shore? We could not return to Newport without our captain. That would be a confession of crime. We could not enter any other harbor for the same reason. Who would believe any lies about fever, or plague, or pirates? No, no, we would not make any port. We must abandon the seabird and take ourselves away from ugly questions. When we came in sight of Block Island, we got into our rowboat and pulled toward land, leaving the vessel to her fate. We lay in the offing until dark, then we landed. All signs of scuffle had been removed from the deck. We must complete the mystery and make away with the longboat. We loaded it with heavy stones, towed it into deep water, drew out the plug, and sunk it. Then we pulled for shore, landed, and sent our boat adrift. That could tell no stories. We were safe. We took the first road westward and walked all night. I felt like one stunned. Yesterday seemed like a horrible dream. Where was my joy at finding myself free at my own master? If it had not been for Hensdale at my side, I should have thought I was dreaming still. We walked for miles without speaking a word. Jack seemed the same as ever, but he saw I was downcast and didn't trouble me with talk. About sunrise, we found ourselves within a few miles of Stonington. Here we separated. Jack divided with me a sum of money taken from the captain's desk. Cheer up, old fellow, and good luck. We'd better part. It won't do for us to be seen together. I know what fortune is waiting for me. There are brave men down in the Gulf who make money easy enough. They've asked me to join them. Now's my time. A rover's life isn't so bad. Gold, spices, silks to be had in plenty if a fellow's got pluck. Go with me, Tom, or join me later. We mustn't keep together here. I have enough of rover's work, Hensdale. Come, come, don't be downhearted. You'll do. But, speaking low, you've got to take care of yourself. Good luck, Tom, and if you won't join me, goodbye. He wrung my hand and was gone. I never saw him again. I had the luck he wished me. I found a sloop bound to New York. I took the passage to her, though I felt I was treading close to danger. But I didn't stay in New York. As soon as I got there, I heard that a vessel had arrived in Newport without a man on board. It seemed as if punishment was really all for me. I didn't wait to hear anything else, but shipped for Copenhagen. From there I came to Ystad, where I have passed many years. I learned the Swedish language and soon found enough employment to maintain me. Ever since that dark night and dreadful day, I have lived an honest man. There are times when I think God may forgive me, and that an innocent life of sixty years may weigh in his sight against the sins of my youth. 
"'May I ask why you tell me this horrible tale?' inquired a young man, who had listened to the above recital. "'Because you say you are going to be a sea captain, and I want you to know something of the injustice shown towards sailors, also the results arising from their cruel treatment. They are rascals, villains, criminals. Yes, and who help make them all these?' Do you think I shall turn into a tiger when I go to sea? You will have power, and power is everywhere a danger, and you will have a mate. I don't believe one word of the story. The account was found among Captain Robson's papers after his death. And that's that story. He's really very, he's very whiny, isn't he? He's a quejona. He's a, he complains a lot. I think it's creepy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I mean, it's possible that there was just a, a coup. And, I mean, I mean, that's probably the most plausible thing, really, isn't it, for everyone to have... Yeah, but, I mean, there were no signs of any struggle on board. Nothing. No, I know. Well, they say in the in the story, it says that they cleaned it all up to make it look so it wasn't suspicious. It's true, yeah. They would have had to have done it, just two people, against how many? Yeah. And then... And then there's no, no bodies ever found. Nobody ever washes up on shore. Yeah. Nowhere. Yeah, what they do, just mm. like sneak around and just shove people overboard? I mean, that would do it. Yeah. Oof. I think any, it was aliens. It could have been. I mean, yeah. yeah. And the aliens were not interested in the cat and the dog. No. Who wants to hurt a cat and a dog? Well, it's possible. They think a lot of aliens, there's a whole, you know, UFOs under the ocean thing, too, that's kind of interesting. So, who can say? It's it's creepy, though. It's creepy. <laughs> yeah. All right. I would like to tell you a story that always fascinated me, and that's the tale of the Octavius. That's a three-masted schooner uh, used as a merchant ship. And this eerie tale is set in the 18th century. So the Octavius is leaving London, heading to China with some unknown cargo, I don't know, and on board not only the crew, but according to some sources also the captain's wife and the captain's son. So okay, they make their way to China, where they are arriving safely one year after their departure. They unload their cargo and... I'm pretty sure that they load up on products because why would they want to not use that cargo space? Right. And so they probably fill up on goods and supply and they are ready to make their way back to Europe. And the weather was unusually warm for the time of the year, which was fall of 1762. So the captain decides to sail the Northwest Passage. I always find the stories about the Northwest Passage so intriguing, but okay, geology.com says about the Northwest Passage, quote, What is the Northwest Passage? The Northwest Passage is a sea route that connects the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean through the Canadian Arctic Archipelago. In the past, the Northwest Passage has been virtually impassable because it was covered by thick year-round sea ice. However... In recent years, climate change is allowing commercial traffic to pass through the Arctic via this once-impossible route. The benefits of a clear northwest passage are significant. Ship routes from Europe to Eastern Asia are 4,000 kilometers or 2,500 miles shorter. Alaskan oil could move quickly by ship to ports in the eastern United States. The vast mineral resources of the Canadian North will be much easier and economical to develop and ship to market. The economic value of a short route uh, connecting the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans was appreciated early. The Spanish referred to this route as the Strait of Anyan. And Francisco de Ulloa started researching the Baja California Peninsula area for it in 1539. English explorers, including Martin Frobisher, John Davis and Henry Hudson, searched from the Atlantic side in the late 1500s and early 1600s. 
these expeditions were unsuccessful. Explorations continued through the 1600s and 1700s without success. Then, in 1849, Robert McClure passed through the Bering Strait with the intent of sailing through the Atlantic. His ship was trapped in the ice not far from making it to Viscount Melville Sound and probable passage to the Atlantic. Finally, after spending three winters on the ice and some members dying of starvation, McClure and crew were rescued by a sledge party from one of Sir Edward Belcher's ships and transported by sledge to the Sound. McClure and his crew became the first to survive a trip through the Northwest Passage. Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen and his crew were the first to cross the Northwest Passage entirely by sea in 1906. Although the crossing was an important first, it had little economic value because the journey took three years and used waters that were too shallow for commercial shipping. The first single-season trip through the passage was by Henry Larsen and crew in 1944. Again, the route taken was not deep enough for commercial shipping. End quote. So, yeah. There are four mentioned Robert McClure was looking for the Lost Franklin expedition, by the way. I have mentioned that one in another episode. I don't remember in which episode was I talking about it. Uh, it's the expedition of the two ships, the Terror and the Erebus, under the command of John Franklin. Remember any that I said I want to do an episode? I know you do. And you know what? I actually don't know very much about that at all. So I'm looking forward to... It's fascinating. Yeah, I'm looking forward to you covering that. Franklin's plan was to sail the Northwest Passage in 1845. And as I really, really want to make an episode about this expedition. I don't want to tell you more about it right now. But yeah, when the Octavius was on its way back from China to London in 1762, so 83 years before the Franklin expedition, the Northwest Passage was not well explored at all. Many had tried to make it through, but nobody really had managed to do so. Or, I don't know, let's rephrase it, back in the era that is often referred to as the Golden Age of Sail, that's roughly 1570 to 1860, nobody was known to really make it through. But, I don't know, Vikings made their way through there before, you know, the Little Ice Age, yeah, which was under different climate and weather conditions, to be fair. Sure. So, the captain of the Octavius says to himself, hey, super nice weather, lovely climate, still so warm for this time of year, sea is calm, let's make some history here and we sail the Northwest Passage home. So off they go, and that's the last that was seen or heard of the Octavius for 13 years. So we are now in 1775. 11th of October 1775, the whaler Herald was trying to catch some whales just west of Greenland when they spot a ship, a three-masted schooner, drifting aimlessly through the waters. The ship appeared to be abandoned, nobody could be seen on deck, the sails were torn, and what was left of the sails was barely hanging on to the mess. The captain of the Herald sends a couple of his men over to see what's going on, because, you know, maybe... There are still people on board and they need help. So the men board a longboat and make their way over. And as they get closer, they probably can read the ship's name, Octavius. So they climb on board, nobody on deck. They make their way down to the lower decks and there they are greeted by an absolutely horrible sight. All men are frozen solid, cuddled up next to each other in a futile attempt to keep warm. The men also enter the captain's cabin and what they find there is even more shocking to them. In the cabin, sitting in a chair at his desk, is the captain, the logbook in front of him and a pen still in his hand. He was writing the last entry in the log. When they turn around, they find the captain's wife and his son under blankets in the captain's bed. The man of the Herald in 
utter horror, grabbed the lock, which caused it to rip some frozen pages out, and they hurried to get off the ship. They return to their own ship and tell the captain and the rest of the crew what they have found, and with the help of the remaining pages of the logbook, they could piece together what must have happened to the Octavius. So apparently they got stuck in ice when they tried to make their way through the passage. The last entry dated 11th of November 1762, and it told them the last position of the ship, 75 north, 160 west, which would be roughly 250 miles north of Alaska. And now, after 13 years, somehow the ship broke free and made its way through and managed to reach the waters surrounding Greenland. And this means that the ship managed to get through the Northwest Passage after all, um, posthumously to say. Yeah. And the crew of the Herald was so scared of the ghost ship and a possible curse that they just let it drift away. And the Octavius was never seen again. Maybe they're still out there. This one is... This one is... Yeah. This one is scary. I mean, imagine you're you're entering a ship and you find everybody like just frozen. Frozen to death. Yeah. It reminds me of one of my um, favorite terrible disaster movies, which is The Day After Tomorrow. And that like flash freeze <laughs> where everybody's just... Yeah, but... That's the thing that's so strange about it to me, because if they really did find the captain, for example, like finding all the men huddled up, cuddled together makes sense. And finding the captain's wife and child like frozen in the bed, that makes sense. But the captain still sitting at his desk writing, that's the part that's like, ooh, if that were the case. I mean, a captain never leaves his position. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's creepy. I don't like that at all. Now, did the Octavius really exist and did all of this really happen? Who can say? But it's a great story, right? Who can say? It is. It's a really great story. And there are very similar stories out there. For example, the tale of the Gloriana. Now, this story is so eerily similar to the Octavius that it's really very likely that both stories go back to the same source. And the author David Meyer, or Mayer, uh, he was able to trace the Gloriana story back to 1905. I think it was a newspaper article he found from 1905. And that one says that in 1775, so even the year is the same, the crew of a ship with the name Try Again, which I love, <laughs> yeah. comes across a ghost ship named Gloriana. And when they enter the ship, they find everybody on board frozen. But the story of the Gloriana doesn't involve the Northwest Passage. And David Mayer, he did dig deeper and he found more. So the earliest mention of a story similar similar to the Octavius and the Gloriana that he could find dates back to 13th of December 1828. And that day, the Philadelphia-based newspaper named The Ariel, a literary and critical gazette. Hmm? Mm. They printed an article with the title, quote, The Dangers of Sailing in High Latitude, end quote. And in this article, they talk about a Captain Warren from an unknown ship, and he and his men encounter a ghost ship. Quote, Captain Warren's curiosity was so much excited that he immediately leapt into the boat with several seamen and rowed towards her. On approaching, he observed that her hull was miserably weather-beaten and not a soul appeared upon the deck, which was covered with snow to considerable depth. He hailed her crew several times, but no answer was returned. Previous to stepping on board, an open portal near the main chains caught his eye, and on looking into it he perceived a man reclining back in a chair with writing materials on a small table before him, but the feebleness of the light made everything very indistinct. The party, therefore, went upon deck, and having removed the hatchway which they found closed, they descended to the cabin. They first came to the apartment which Captain Warrens had viewed through the porthole. A tremor seized him as he entered it. Its inmate retained his former position and seemed to be insensible of strangers. 
He was found to be a corpse, and a green, damp mold had covered his cheeks and forehead and wailed his eyeballs. He held a pen in his hand and a logbook before him, the last sentence in whose unfinished page thus, quote, 11th November 1762, we have been enclosed in the ice 70 days. The fire went out yesterday and our master has been trying ever since to kindle it again, but without success. His wife died this morning, there is no relief, end quote. And end quote. So here the crew is, I mean, they're still kind of frozen, but yeah. also molding. Well, they thought a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, they thought a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and again, there's no mention of the Northwest Passage, but other than that, it's super similar. And of course, the dates. Yeah. yeah. But I think the, the whole part of the Northwest Passage from the Octavius story makes it so much more interesting, don't you think? Because it's a warning to those who seek to conquer nature. Yeah. And it also reminds me a little bit of the Titanic because against better knowledge doing something very dangerous out on the ocean mm. and ultimately it leads to the demise of the ship and everyone on board. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I want to mention one more legendary ghost ship that is very, very similar to the Octavius story. And that's the tale of the schooner Jenny. And the story goes that in 1823, the schooner Jenny was trying to make its way through the Drake Passage. So that's the passage between Cape Horn and Antarctica, which means the other side of the world. And of course, the Jenny got stuck in ice and was declared lost. The ship was discovered in 1840 by yet another whaling ship. It's always the whaling ships. Mm. And just as with the Octavius and the Gloriana, the crew of the Jenny was frozen solid and perfectly preserved by the Antarctic ice for 17 years. And again, we don't know for sure if this actually ever really happened. The origin of the tale of the Jenny seems to be a German magazine named The Globus, where an anonymous article from 1862 talks about the frozen ship, and it kind of made its way to, to pop culture or, you know... I don't yeah. know. How would you call it if it's not modern pop culture? But, you know, in literature and, and stuff like that, yeah. More mainstream, yeah. Yeah. The Australian poet Rosemary Dobson, for example, wrote a poem called The Ship of Ice about the Jenny tale. And I will absolutely not read it to you now, but we will link it um, in our sources if you're interested. It's a very long poem. Yeah, we're, we're foisting enough poetry on you today. <laughs> yeah, I think there's so many stories about ships stuck in ice because it was such a danger for ships back then, especially anybody trying to navigate through the Northwest Passage or the Drake Passage. I think people were just getting frozen a lot back then. I mean, not, not so often that it's something you'd see every day, but not uncommon, you know? It, yeah, it was not, it was not something like completely made up. Right, right. And like today, you would think, oh, well, that would never happen, but... Yeah. And there's another very famous ship, the HMS Resolute. Yeah, so that's another ship that went looking for the Lost Franklin expedition. Yep. They got stuck in the ice as well and abandoned ship in 1854. In 1855, the Resolute was then found drifting close to the Canadian Baffin Island. Uh, that's 1,200 miles or 1,900 kilometers from where they had abandoned the ship. It's so fascinating how these ships then can break free once the temperature rise enough and they drift such a long distance without anybody on board steering it or maintaining it. Yeah, that's a really seaworthy ship, right? See, now I'm wondering how many ghost ships were there that we just never saw that eventually went down in a storm, yeah. you know? 
It's creepy to think about, really. But yeah, so that the whaler George Henry, under the command of James Buddington, he encountered the Drifting Resolute on September 10th, 1855. And in the October 1856 issue of the New York Journal, writes, quote, Finally, stealing over the side, they found everything stowed away in proper order for desertion. Spars hauled up one side and bound, boats piled together, and hatches closed. Everything wore the silence of the tomb. Finally reaching the cabin door, they broke in and found their way in the darkness to the table. On it, they accidentally turned on a box of lucifer matches. In a moment, one was ignited. The glowing light revealed a candle. It was lit, and before the astonished gaze of these men exposed a scene that appeared to be rather one of enchantment than reality. Upon a massive table was a metal teapot, glistening as if new, also a large volume of Scott's family Bible, together with glasses and decanters filled with choice liquors. Nearby was Captain Kellett's chair, a piece of massive furniture over which had been thrown, as if to protect this seat from vulgar occupation, the royal flag of Great Britain. End quote. The Resolute was then brought back to England, and it served until 1879 in the Royal Navy. After the ship's retirement, three very famous desks were made from its timber. One small writing desk, the so-called Grinnell Desk, was gifted to the widow of Henry Grinnell. Henry Grinnell was a merchant and philanthropist from Massachusetts who was one of the most generous donors for expeditions that were looking for the lost Franklin Expedition. A second table was commissioned by Queen Victoria herself, and it is still part of the British Royal Collection. And the third desk, where did that one end up? Many of our U.S. Hellions might already know that it was gifted to U.S. President Rutherford B. Hayes in 1880. Since that day, the so-called Resolute Desk has been used by almost all U.S. Presidents. Only LBJ, Richard Nixon, and Gerald Ford did not use the desk made from the wood of the famous ship. And while most presidents use the desk in the Oval Office, there have been others like Dwight D. Eisenhower who preferred to use it in their private study. There is a replica of the Resolute Desk at the JFK Presidential Library in Boston. It's a really great spot to visit if you've never been. It is closed, I believe, through the, throughout the end of the year because of COVID, but definitely go check out their gift shop online where I think for around $7,000 you can get your own replica of the desk. So, yeah. <laughs> I love it how history always keeps intertwining, you know what I mean? I it's do. It's so great. It's, I love it. It's great. But not too creepy. We've digressed a little bit from the creepy fit for Halloween ghost ship tales. Mm. And that is why we would like to end this episode with one of the most famous ghost ships, a real ghost ship in the, in the literal understanding, which is the Flying Dutchman. Johanna, would you like to quickly recap the story of the Flying Dutchman? Uh, yeah, so some of you might know the infamous ghost ship from Pirates of the Caribbean. Others might know it from the Wagner opera, right? Mm-hmm. Also, if you're a lit major, you might think of the more well-known Rime of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, which was inspired by that. Yeah, so many stories, but it's all based on a European maritime legend about the Dutch captain uh, who is cursed to sail the seven seas for all eternity until Judgment Day, I think. Mm-hmm. It's not the same in all stories. Sometimes he uh, he makes it packed with the devil. If the devil lets him sail the the Cape Horn, I think. No, the, the Cape of Good Hope. I'm not sure which one. And another time, I think he's playing 
dice or poker and he loses his soul. Yeah, so he's cruising the seven seas for all the time and whenever ships cruise sea the Flying Dutchman it means imminent danger or probable doom. And I read a really interesting article a while back where it says that the Flying Dutchman was seen by so many seamen yeah. uh, over the centuries and there's a scientific explanation for that. I read an article where oh. it says it's a Fata Morgana out on sea. Oh, okay, that's interesting. I will try to find the article, it's really interesting. Yeah. Definitely. So, Annie's lovely smooth voice will now read to the poem The Flying Dutchman by John Boyle O'Reilly, who, by the way, was JFK's favorite poet. Bringing it back to JFK. I'm actually wearing JFK <laughs> socks right now. They were my mom's. Really? I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm literally wearing my mom's <laughs> JFK socks right now that I bought her at the gift shop of the library. So I'm going to read you again one last long poem, but before that, we want to thank you again for listening, ask you to please leave a review, and as always, if you're going through hell, keep going. Cheers. Bye. The Flying Dutchman by John Boyle O'Reilly Her captain was a stalwart man, an iron heart had he. From childhood's days he sailed upon the rolling Zyder Zee. He nothing feared upon the earth, and scarcely heaven feared. He would have dared and done whatever mortal man had dared. He looked aloft where high in the air the pennant cut the blue, and every rope and spar and sail was firm and strong and true. He turned him from the swelling sail to gaze upon the shore. Ah, little thought the skipper, then t'would meet his eye no more. He dreamt not that an awful doom was hanging o'er his ship, that Vanderdecken's name would yet make pale the speaker's lip. The vessel bounded on her way, and spire and dome went down. Ere darkness fell beneath, the wave had sunk the distant town. No more, no more, ye hapless crew, shall Holland meet your eye. In lingering hope and keen surprise, made wife and child shall die. Away, away, the vessel speeds, till sea and sky alone, around her as her course she steers across the torrid zone. Away until the north star fades, the southern cross is high, and myriad gems of brightest beam are sparkling in the sky. The tropic winds are left behind, she nears the cape of storms, where awful tempest ever sits enthroned in wild alarms. Where ocean in his anger shakes aloft his foamy crest, disdainful of the weakly toys that ride upon his breast. Pierce swell the winds, and waters round the Dutchman gallant ship. But to their rage defiance rings from Vanderdecken's lip. Impotent they to make him swerve, their might he dares despise. As straight he holds his onward course, and wind and wave defies. For days and nights he struggles in the weird unearthly fight. His brow is bent, his eye is fierce, but looks of deep affright. Amongst the mariners go round, as hopelessly they steer. They do not dare to murmur, but they whisper what they fear. Their black-browed captain awes them, neath his darkened eye they quail, and in a grin and sullen mood their bitter fate bewail. As if some fierce rider ruthless spurs a timid, wavering horse, he drives his shapely vessel, and they watch the reckless course, till once again their skipper's laugh is flung upon the blast. The placid ocean smiles beyond, the dreaded cape is past. Away across the Indian main the vessel northward glides, a thousand murmuring ripples break along her ground. 
graceful sides. The perfumed breezes fill her sails, her destined port she nears. The captain's brow has lost its frown, the mariners their fears. Land ho at length the welcome sound the watchful sailor sings, and soon within an Indian bay the ship at anchor swings. Not idle then the busy crew, ere long the spacious hold, is emptied of its western freight and stored with silk and gold. Again the ponderous anchors waited, the shore is left behind, the snowy sails are bosomed out before the favoring wind. Across the warm blue Indian sea the vessel southward flies, and once again the north star fades and austral beacons rise. For home she steers, as she seems to know and answer to the word, and swifter skims the burnished deep like some fair ocean bird. For home, for home, the merry crew with gladsome voices cry, and dark-browed Vanderdecken has a mild light in his eye. But once again the cape draws near, and furious billows rise, and still the daring Dutchman's laugh the hurricane defies. But wildly shrieked the tempest ere the scornful sound had died, a warning to the daring man to curb his impious pride. A crested mountain struck the ship, and like a frightened bird, she trembled neath the awful shock then Vanderdecken heard. A pleading voice within the gale, his better angel spoke, but fled before his scowling look as mast-high mountains broke. Around the trembling vessel till the crew with terror paled, but Vanderdecken never flinched nor neath the thunders quailed. With folded arms and stern-pressed lips, dark anger in his eye, he answered back the threatening frown that lowered o'er the sky. With fierce defiance in his heart and scornful look aflame, he spoke and thus with impious voice blasphemed God's holy name. How long, ye winds, ye tempests howl, your rage is spent in vain. Despite your strength, your frowns, your hate, I'll ride upon the main. Defiance to your idle shrieks, I'll sail upon my path. I cringe not for thy maker's smile, I care not for his wrath. He ceased. An awful silence fell. The tempest and the sea were hushed in sudden stillness by the ruler's dread decree. The ship was riding motionless within the gathering gloom. The Dutchman stood upon the poop and heard his dreadful doom. The hapless crew were on the deck in swooning terror prone. They too were bound in fearful fate, in angered thunder tone. The judgment word swept o'er the sea. Go wretch, accursed, condemned. Go sail forever on the deep by shrieking tempests hemmed. No home, no port, no calm, no rest, no gentle favoring breeze shall ever greet thee. Go, accursed, and battle with the seas. Go braggart, struggle with the storm, nor ever cease to live, but bear a million times the pangs that death and fear can give. Away and hide thy guilty head, a curse to all thy kind, who ever see thee struggling wretch with ocean and with wind. Away, presumptuous worm of earth, go teach thy fellow worms the awful fate that waits on him who braves the king of storms. Twas o'er, and lurid lightning flash lit up the sea and sky, around and o'er the faded ship, then rose a wailing cry from every heart within her of keen anguish and despair but mercy was for them no more it died away in air once more the lurid light gleamed out, the ship was still at rest. The crew were standing at their posts with arms across his breast. Still stood the captain on the poop, but bent and crouching now. He bowed beneath that fiat dread, and o'er his swarthy brow swept lines of anguish, as if he a thousand years of pain had lived and suffered, then across the heaving angry main. The tempest shrieked triumphant, and the angry waters hissed, their vengeful hate against the toy they oftentimes had kissed. And ever 
Ever though the midnight storm that hapless crew must speed, they try to round the stormy cape, but never can succeed. And oft when gales are wildest, and the lightning's vivid sheen flashes back the ocean's anger, still the phantom ship is seen. Ever sailing to the southward in the fierce tornado's swoop, with her ghostly crew in canvas and her captain on the poop, unrelenting, unforgiven, and tis said that every word of his blasphemous defiance still upon the gale is heard. But heaven help the ship near which the dismal sailor steers. The doom of those is sealed to whom the phantom ship appears. They'll never reach their destined port. They'll see their homes no more. They who see the flying Dutchman never, never reach the shore.